Imagine this scene with me for a moment. Two men went up to church for worship. One is a well-respected Christian father and husband. He sits toward the front of the sanctuary with his well-mannered children, beautiful family, eagerly scanning the room in hopes that someone has noticed his new goatskin study Bible. And while surveying the room, he notices another gentleman, a scraggly, unkept fellow in the back corner. He appears dejected, almost crying. Maybe he is. Regardless, looks suspicious. Then it hits him. This man is a known criminal. Recently released after serving his prison sentence for robbing multiple banks several years ago. The well-respected Christian father can't believe that this guy's already traipsing about normal life, trying to mix it up with God-fearing people like himself. The well-respected father and husband sings extra loud that day before approaching the platform to lead a public prayer in which he repeatedly thanks God that he and the members of his church are not like other compromising liberal church members who don't value beautiful lengthy prayers like his own. Thanking God that he and his church are such generous sacrificial givers. Thanking God that he and his church do church the right way. And he concludes by thanking God that their assembly is a bastion of purity in the midst of of a world of wickedness. A world, <clears throat> he clears his throat, in which people rob and steal, raises his voice a bit on those words, to commit other such expressions of depravity. So the scraggly fellow in the back corner just keeps muttering to himself with his head down, God, you know who I am. You know what I've done. Please show me mercy. I'm a wicked sinner. There is no hope for me apart from your grace. And only one of those two men went back to their homes that Sunday afternoon justified before God. Modern attempts to retell parables... They just don't get it quite right, though, do they? Our day is not Jesus' day. And our society is just so different than the first century social and cultural world. But does this mean that Jesus' parables must only prick the consciences of those in his immediate audience, as if self-righteousness does not plague us today? Cultural customs change, big time. But the human heart does not. So before exploring this convicting parable together this morning, there's only one place for every one of us to begin. Young and old, rich or poor, extroverted, introverted, spiritually devout, spiritually dry. The starting line for every one of us must be a humble, honest heart before God. 
St. Augustine wrote some 1,600 years ago. He said this, The way of the Christian religion is first, humility. Second, humility. And third, humility. And however often you ask me, I would say the same. If humility does not precede and accompany and follow every good work we do, and if it is not set before us to look upon, and beside us to lean upon, and behind us to fence us in, pride will wrest from our hand any good deed we do while we are in the very act of taking pleasure in it. So, however many minutes from now, 40, 45 minutes, conclusion of this sermon, two hours if necessary. (laughs) If pride prevails and self-righteousness wins out in our hearts, This may sadly have been a royal waste of time. Let's take Augustine's threefold counsel. Humility, humility, humility. As we go before the life-giving word of God together. So to that end, would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, as we work our way through these short verses before us, told by our Lord, relayed to us through your spirit, through the gospel writer Luke, we take heart that these words are not for others. They are for us, every one of us. We pray you would open our hearts to behold wonderful things out of your law and that those wonderful things would have their way within us for your glory. Christ, we pray. Amen. Performative religion and saving faith. The preceding passage in Luke that we considered a few weeks ago, the parable of the persistent widow, drove home the point that as Christ's disciples await their Savior's return, they must pray persistently and and fervently, never losing heart and never giving up, knowing that the promises of their Lord are ever true, clinging to those. The passage we're considering this morning, however, teaches that prayerlessness is not the only hazard for Christ's disciples. In fact, even if you are an all-star prayer warrior, it means nothing. If by doing so, you have lost sight of your true condition before a holy God. It would appear that even exceptional devotion to God does not automatically mean justification by God, as we'll learn in this parable. We first see in verse 9 the intended audience that Jesus has in mind, a particular group that he's aiming this particular parable toward. In this tale of two prayers, verse 9 gives a specific audience to which Jesus is concerned. Verse 9 reads, He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So the target audience to which Jesus delivers this parable is certain people who evidence two characteristics. They trusted in themselves We might say they were self-righteous, but then they also looked down upon others. 
Another way to put this, other translations read, they, they ridiculed, they despised, they, they viewed with contempt other people. This is the same verb used by the Apostle Peter when he proclaims before the religious authorities in Acts chapter 4 that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there's salvation in no one else. So that word rejected. So just as Peter condemns the Sadducees and priests in Acts 4 for ridiculing and despising Jesus, here Jesus condemns the same crowd, essentially, by means of this parable for ridiculing and despising the very ones for whom Jesus is saving by his grace. And before the parable lands on us with the impact that it deserves, ask yourself, do you frequently find yourself viewing others with contempt for spiritual reasons in particular? Do you frequently think little of those who don't measure up, in your opinion, despising those who just don't get it and who refuse to act with the moral decency that used to be the norm in the world of days gone by? Easy thing to do. Do you tend to rely upon your religious activity for your sense of identity and security, specifically your security as a child of God? A helpful quote here, a helpful graphic even. The author Trevin Wax writes this. He says regarding this text, spiritual short-sightedness leads to a sense of spiritual superiority. When you look in yourself that you are righteous, you look down on others. And when you look down on others, you feel better about yourself. And on and on the cycle goes with these two elements reinforcing each other in a cyclical manner. Oftentimes, a harsh, a judgmental spirit springs up as a result of misplaced trust. So as we hear this parable of Jesus, evaluate your own heart along these lines this morning. We see next the actual parable that Jesus delivers in verses 10 through 13. We read, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So if I were to ask all the children in the room, can you identify the good guy in the story and the bad guy? I wonder if you are internally getting that. I wonder, I would venture to say, we'd get a pretty uh, unanimous uh, set of results. There wouldn't be a whole lot of variation, I would assume. For all of us today, we read this and we pretty quickly come to dislike the proud Pharisee, right? While admiring the, the honest humility of the tax collector. 
But to Jesus' audience, things would have been quite different. We see these, in verse 10, these two notorious characters. Caricatures, if you will. People who embodied well-worn stereotypes. First, the, the Pharisee. Society would have viewed the Pharisee as an admirable, upstanding citizen, worthy of a great deal of honor and respect, by and large. The historian Josephus tells us, Pharisees were a body of Jews known for surpassing all others in their devotion and piety and exact interpretation of the laws. They were the most highly esteemed group in Jewish society. So, in their understanding, he was the good guy. Clearly, he's the good guy. And predictably, he was before God's presence in the temple talking to God, where you'd expect someone like him. And the contrast with the tax collector couldn't be greater. The caricature, the stereotype of the tax collectors working well for us as well. He had a reputation that he lived up to as well. He was a crook. He was not to be trusted. Tax collectors were scumbags. Underlings doing the dirty work for their overlords, who were these hired tax farmers for the Roman government. Tax collectors made their living by extorting their fellow Jews with whatever phony additional taxes they could con people into forking over. Kent Hughes writes this, He says, they were religious and political traitors to Hebrew society, utterly despicable. They were disavowed from public office and were barred from giving testimony in court. They were outcasts, untouchables. In today's culture, the closest social equivalent would be drug pushers or pimps, those who prey on society, who make money off others' bodies and make a living of stealing from others. The pre-programmed mental categories for these two men were very strong. One was good, and everyone knew it. And the other was bad, and everybody knew it. So as we look at the setting of where we find these two men, it's very interesting. The thought of a tax collector praying was something of an oxymoron. A tax collector Praying. Insert joke. Ha <laughs> ha. Everyone laughs. Really? Another commentator notes this. We may be conditioned by the word pray to visualize these two men going to the temple for private devotions. But nothing could be further from the truth. There were two periods for public prayer. The third hour, 9 a.m., and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., during the twice-daily whole offering, or the Tamid service, a Jewish audience would assume that these men were joining in the corporate worship of Israel, in which they prayed during the burning of the incense and waited to receive the priestly benediction. The context is corporate worship in the temple. The setting is a time of public prayer, at the temple, but the specific location and the specific postures of these two men indicate something. We see in verses 11 through 12 the the Pharisee's prayer. First note how Luke mentions the location of the Pharisee. 
since Luke specifically notes the tax collector is standing far off, we can logically assume, by contrast, that the Pharisee has a front row ticket. Note, however, that he is alone on that front row, likely standing in a solitary place of prominence in the temple. He's clearly not afraid of the limelight. Stage fright is just not something he struggles with. He's in the temple, on his stage, so to speak, and it's showtime. The curtain rises and he's ready to deliver his beautiful speech before his adoring fans, or perhaps that's how he envisions it. In a certain way, I'm reminded of an interaction I had a number of years ago in downtown Milwaukee, right outside the the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee downtown. And there was a street preacher preaching furiously, hellfire and brimstone, from a bullhorn right outside the, the university, preaching about the evils of society and God's pending judgment. You've seen folks like this, no doubt. I decided I would talk to the man. I decided I would ask the gentleman simply if I could learn more about what he was preaching. I had to ask him a couple times just to sort of get his attention, just to let him know I was sort of still there. And catching his breath for a quick second, he angrily muttered something to me, I don't have time. I have people to reach. I thought, that's a bit ironic. He has no idea I could be one of those very people who he's trying to reach, just wanting to learn more. This man didn't know me. When asked for a private conversation, it was, it was clear his public ministry was what was all important. I don't know this man's heart, and I don't want to uh, fall into the snare of being overly judgmental of his zeal, to which at some level is certainly commendable. But his words seem to indicate a similar spirit to the Pharisee in this parable. His stage, as it were, was what seemed to matter the most. Next, note the content or the substance of the Pharisee's prayer. It appears to be a prayer of thanksgiving, but wait for it. It's not. It's a fake. Like a phony Rolex watch sold on the street corner in Chinatown in New York City, it lacks authenticity because when you hold it, It has no weight. It's light. It's lacking in true substance. The only thing this phony prayer of thanksgiving includes is the Pharisee's own spiritual awesomeness. (laughs) It was essentially a self-congratulatory monologue disguised as a prayer, one man wrote. It's a brief prayer, but he manages to impressively pack in five eyes. Five of them. I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's pretty clear who's getting all the attention here. This one author writes, he asks nothing from God because he thinks he needs nothing. Seeking God's mercy and forgiveness seems unnecessary. From what follows, he's already aced the exam, graded it himself, and given himself an A+. Not only is the prayer self-congratulatory, but it's almost competitive 
in the tone of it. He's a spiritual success only to the degree that he's ranked himself against extortioners and murderers, adulterers, and unjust citizens who don't pray as often as he does and who do not give generously like he does. Can't you just hear the tone working its way through the page of your Bible there as if it's a scratch and sniff or something and it's just going to bleed out? It's, it's just ripe for that. Leviticus and Numbers detail fasting as being required only on the Day of Atonement, once a year. So this Pharisee has upped his game to twice a week, precisely 103 times more than Moses commanded. Regarding tithing, he went above and beyond as well, tithing on all that he possessed, not simply what he had earned. So in both of these ways, it would appear that he thinks God is now in his debt. How lucky God is to have this superstar playing on his team. I mean, he doesn't just show up for practice. He puts in the hours, the extra effort, more than anyone else by far. This guy is special. He's an impeccable example of devotion, and yet entirely off track. By contrast, note the tax collector's prayer in verse 13. His location, still in the temple, is standing far off, especially in relation to Old Testament categories of sacred space, proximity to God is very significant. He understands God's presence dwells in that most holy place, and he recognizes he deserves no access to the God of heaven and earth. And his posture signals the state of his soul. He cannot lift his eyes or his hands to heaven in that typical posture of prayer. His shame is just too heavy at the sins he knows he's committed. So he beats his chest, a symbol of extreme sorrow. His sorrow was not external, grieving over outside things. They were, it was over the internal state of his soul. He's in the back of the crowd, occupying a position of little significance. He's attempting to be a star example for nobody. He's attempting to be seen by no one. He's only aware of one audience, the one he's offended. And he's only aware of one reality, his sinfulness. He's only aware of one need, mercy. The famous English poet Richard Crashaw wrote a poem about this, about this parable some 400 years ago. He said this, Two men went into the temple to pray. Two men went to pray? Oh, rather say, one went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high, where the other dares not send his eye. One near to God's altar trod, the other to the altar's God. What a beautiful, poetic way of summarizing the contrast that Jesus intends to bring out. So we see Jesus land the plane for us, so to speak, in verse 14, delivering that intended principle that he wants us to grasp. 
I tell you, this man, the tax collector that is, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what does Jesus mean when he issues this pronouncement that only one of these two men, the tax collector, went down from the temple and back to his house justified? This is the only time this word occurs in the Gospels, and it's characteristically a Pauline term used to signify the declaration of being acquitted by God of one's guilt and sin. What Jesus would have us see is not the words of these men's prayers per se or the postures they exhibit, but the attitude of their hearts. To be justified by God, one must first come to know and believe they are hopelessly lost without the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Utterly foundational. Jesus' parable here should shake the least churched among us to the most churched. Lostness, according to this parable, has very little to do with one's church attendance or holding an official church office position or participating in a summer ministry trip or a work day or faithfulness in children's ministry and on and on. Setting your spiritual reputation aside entirely for just a moment. Evaluate your heart before God. As we said earlier, exceptional devotion to God does not automatically mean justification by God. As C.S. Lewis bluntly stated, a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. So where is your trust today. The insidious power of the pleasures of sin blind irreligious sinners from repentance almost every moment of every day around the world. We know this. But so does the insidious power of self-righteousness for the religious. And at the end of Jesus' story, there wasn't a sinner and a Pharisee. There were two sinners. And both equally needed God's mercy. So for the tax collector types among us, if we think in those categories for a moment, would you take hope in the mercy of Christ? Take hope. If we could know this man's thoughts as he stood in the temple that day, maybe he observed the sacrifices and the words of atonement and benediction and kept thinking, none of this matters for scumbags like me doesn't do it for me. And as one man writes, he says, atonement for tax collectors was notoriously difficult. For to receive forgiveness, one must repent. And to repent, one must make recompense. That is, settling one's accounts with those who have been robbed. But thankfully, as the story of Zacchaeus tells us, one chapter later, it illustrates perfect example of a tax collector doing just that. I will repay fourfold. So perhaps 
This man considers the immense number of people that he's conned and swindled and wronged and knows that there is no way to do anything about this mountain of debt and to make it go away. So he just cries, Lord, I got, I got nothing. Be merciful. Not just the people. These people that seem like they understand these promises, and, but I, I'm a sellout. None of them like me. But, but to me, to me, perhaps Jesus is hinting at the fact that he himself will soon replace the temple and its limitations as the sacred space where God's mercy and grace are known. But regardless, the Bible is clear that the mercy of God is extended to all people who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if your life is marked this morning by an overwhelming sense of sin's dominion over you, run to Jesus. Run to the mercy of Jesus. Only He can bestow mercy and forgive sin and remove shame and adopt you into His forever family and create a whole new identity within you. Run to Jesus. For the Pharisee types among us, counsel same. Take hope in the mercy of Christ. Note Jesus' word of warning at the end of verse 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Exalting ourselves and humbling ourselves. Each is given a pretty clear illustration through the prayers represented in this parable. British theologian John Stott says this, convicting word, the same Pharisaic spirit still haunts every child of Adam today. It is easy to be critical of Christ's contemporaries and miss the repetition of their vainglory in ourselves. Yet deeply ingrained in our fallen nature is this thirst for the praise of men. It seems to be a devilish perversion of our basic psychological need to be wanted and loved. We hunger for applause. We fish for compliments. Thrive on flattery. It is the approval of men we want. And we are not content with God's approval now or with His well done, good and faithful servant on the last day. Jesus warned the Pharisees over and over and over and over and over again, did He not? He reserved His most jarring most harsh words for these blind guides, these hypocrites, these brood of vipers. Woe after woe after woe he pronounces on them throughout the Gospels for tying heavy burdens on people's shoulders that they cannot bear. They are attention addicts in the worst sense. They love places of honor at feasts, in the synagogue, in the marketplaces, etc., but at the end of the day, in spite of all their doctrinal precision, they were able to look God's Son in the eyes and say, we want Him crucified. That's the level of lostness. 
Should we read such warnings by Jesus and assume such problems are ancient problems? Not to be repeated by us today? The Pharisees had considerable political power and social influence and religious impact. They loved Christian education through their diligent synagogue training throughout the land. I suppose I shouldn't say Christian education. They loved theological education through their synagogue investments. They loved to rightly divide the Word of God as best they were seeking to do. They loved to protect themselves from the impurities of the world. And as one author put it, they dominated the spiritual heartbeat of the nation. And yet, in reality, lost as lost can be. Should we then assume the lifestyle of the tax collector is the life to be emulated? Is that where we go? Of course not. There's a reason for his despondency. It's the life that he lived, the brokenness of it. Nevertheless, the point of this parable must drive itself home to our very core. There is a real and present danger, unique to religiously observant folk like most of us. We need that word. Recognize the unique deception of self-righteousness. It's insidious, and only God knows your heart. But a good indicator is how you perceive yourself in relation to others. Do you hold others in contempt, looking down on them with derision, not merely recognizing a genuine difference of opinion on significant matters? As our fractured American context brought out a version of this in your life, where news outlets catechize us to remain outraged 24-7 around the clock, resulting in a frustrated, angsty spirit that unwittingly has you angry that the world is mainly a pitchfork-wielding mob of crazy nutjobs that must be stopped, to put it bluntly. It is right to desire fair treatment under the law for everyone and for Christian lawyers, lawmakers, public figures, and even the citizenry to contend for the goodness of God's Word on particular matters that touch on public policy and the like. But how easy it can be to, be, to wear that Christian foam finger at the game and kind of pull for our team and hoping that we just clobber the opposition. The world is on its way to meeting God, which may not be a pretty scene. We know the end. But our response should not be like Jonah, unwilling to go where the need was great, then inwardly despising God when mercy is offered and judgment is averted. May that never be our heart. Friends, it may sting. It may be unpleasant, but we need to keep our eyes on the peril of self-righteousness for the danger it presents to those who can be right on a whole lot of things but miss it entirely. As a church, we know God has done great things in this assembly 
in particular. He has done great things. What a tremendous gift our own church heritage is to us. And we are right to keep telling those stories of God's grace, aren't we? And yet, may God watch, help us watch our hearts through it. Do we believe we have all things church-related figured out as an assembly? And in our attempts to thank God, something else comes out? Or it's just, I'm just real glad I'm on the right team. And we, we don't quite make it the genuine expression of thanksgiving that it ought to be. God forbid that we twist or pervert His grace to us by making it a, a brand or a style or anything more than just humble obedience to following His Word as best we know how through the help of His Spirit. Do you approach corporate worship like the Pharisee or the tax collector? Perhaps we're in different places on different days. Eternity will tell for sure. But we have opportunity today to learn from Jesus' parable here. We need not thank God that we are not like other men because as it turns out, we are like other men. We really are. Just like every other man or woman on planet earth, our most foundational need is the same. Mercy. Mercy. And when we forget this, our ship runs off course and in our pride, we increasingly exalt ourselves and despise and disparage others. Speaking personally, this parable is incredibly convicting especially for those who serve in any kind of public ministry. It is an extra dose of warning, and we ought to receive it as such. My heart runs in the same direction as the Pharisee all too often. Maybe yours does as well. My heart loves to be right, too much so a lot of times. My heart can easily twist prayers of thanksgiving into self-congratulatory praise, even if those prayers are never vocalized and they stay inside. My heart can enjoy the praise of man as much as the Pharisee. And for these reasons, I need with you to hear Jesus' words along with his gentle warning. And oh, how sweet it is to taste of God's mercy and His forgiveness, and His grace. And when we sin, and we know it, and we come to hate it, consider muttering the tax collector's God-magnifying prayer on the regular. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Reminding ourselves that is who we are. Sinners in need of mercy. Performance versus penitence. One is bankrupt of virtue. One is pleasing to God. God help us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you recognizing the, the way the water seems to want to run within the course of our hearts is very often towards self-righteousness. And it probably doesn't matter if we've been a Christian for a couple months or couple decades or as long as we can remember 
we so often tend in that direction. And Lord, it's difficult, especially for those who have known your grace for quite some time, to grow acclimated to it, to start to come up with false ideas that we're anything other than that tax collector, to believe that we are pretty special. Lord, help us not to overreact, not to assume that the uh, abuse of something good means it should be the disuse of it. We know there's the temptation that we are aware of for people to utterly abandon any semblance of a traditional Christian faith or church altogether, chucking it to the wind, believing it needs to be fully reimagined in every way, shape, and form. Well, we don't intend to go that direction either. But we pray that this would be a gut check on our souls, this text, and that we would rightly stare into the peril, the hazard of self-righteousness. And we would see you slowly by your grace chip away at it. Lord, keep us humble. Perhaps even for those of us who are not part of that that generation that saw your faithfulness and grace 20, 30 years ago in the course of this church in particular, that you would help us to not, even with (laughs) desiring to have good motives, brag on what you've done. We're thankful for it, Lord, but may we hold it in the right way. And may we carry on, press on with humility before you. Thank you that we know we stand upon the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God and receive the pleasure of knowing God through Christ has justified us by His grace. In whose name we pray. Amen.